Lawrence of Arabia is one of those movies you can do a bad job of watching. There's so much happening in this film that you can actually fail at it as a viewer. To succeed at watching this movie is to leave it more confused than you entered, to have your prejudices challenged and your assumptions upended, and to appreciate that not all of that was the film's intention. The events depicted can't be summarized or diagrammed. You can't dissect them effectively using the blunt instrument of any particular ideology. There are no coherent narratives where the choices were clear or where history could have gone a different way. And maybe none of it happened like this anyway, but maybe it did. Coming out of this movie with a couple of pat conclusions and a prescription is equivalent to whacking at a turducken with a pocket comb and claiming to have rebuilt a living turkey, chicken, and duck. It's a movie about a man in a time and place, the myth of the man, the making of the myth of the man in his own time, the myth of the making of the myth of the man in his immediate aftermath, and the math of making the myth of the man either stand or be damned after the dashed-off first draft of his plan to salve the wrath of the clans was panned by cads and damned by a new brand of grandstanding also-rans who want to reprimand and ban what they can't understand. But it's so tempting... Here is a smorgasbord of sweeping takes on imperialism, colonialism, tribalism, bureaucratism, classism, casteism, militarism, orientalism, pan-Arabism, proto-antisemitism, revisionism, double-triple revisionism, anti-disestablishmentarianism, sang-froid, saxophone, and reckless folly. It is full of lies and tap dancing, but it is also plausibly true in many ways. Or at least if you're prepared to argue it is 100% lies and tap dancing, you'd better have a convincing alternate history of the world, which I'm sure you do, and I can assure you that no one wants to hear it except your small group of friends who also don't want to hear it and are just waiting for you to finish. But anyway, go ahead and mail it to Adam. This is a mid-century opera where the germ of collective Arab identity is credited to a somewhat friendless Englishman. It mocks the colonial enterprise and the folly of empire while making it all look rather grand. And it sets the scene for what became the central, festering, uncurable sore of geopolitics from then until now. Everyone is ridiculous in this movie, and their foolishness is foregrounded, but also made to look gorgeous and unavoidable. Lawrence is a holy fool, but what would we do without him? The British were small M mistaken and large A awful throughout, but ultimately right in their wrong-headed way about a thing that they were fundamentally wrong about. The only ones to escape this movie without being indicted as utterly self-defeating, callow, and culturally suicidal are the Turks, who are simply depraved. Yet the movie is wonderful, an absolute masterpiece. Peter O'Toole's Lawrence is nuanced and fascinating, a masterwork of characterization, wild-eyed and canny, despite the fact that he was at the very start of his film career and this was his breakout role. Along with director David Lean, he turned in a banger. We watch a lot of movies that depict real events, but no war movie sets the stage for the world we live in quite like this one. These few years are the neck of the hourglass. There's the world before and the world after. And although not a comprehensive picture, it's essential viewing. It's problematic in many ways, characteristic of its time. Let's just say the brown makeup budget was unusually large, but it takes pains to look hard at itself as it goes. It's an epic in scale and scope, and it's almost four hours long. So we're going to interrogate this entry in the canon, and we're going to do our best. There's a lot to think about, to talk about, and to argue about, and in that sense, this is as good as a movie gets. As the ancient curse goes, I hope you watch it with a friend that disagrees with you, and then you have to take a six-hour car ride together across the desert to spread the ashes of your dead best friend at the foot of an olive tree. Please direct all correspondence to 
Hi, I'm Adam at maxfunkenstein.sex. There's nothing further here for a warrior. We drive bargains. Old men's work. Today on Friendly Fire, 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that leaves no wounded for the Turks. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Yeah, put them out of their misery. The (laughs) pre-misery. Another movie that TurkFan69 is not a great big fan. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) The Turks don't don't shine here, but very few people shine in this movie, really. I mean, if uh, if you really interrogate anyone's story front or back they don't they don't look particularly good i fully came into this movie expecting orance to be the man orance the the rakish (laughs) awesome hero and the, the first 90 minutes of this film are basically people uh whispering behind his back like what the fuck is wrong with that guy that guy's a weirdo. Let's let's get him away from us and into the desert. Yeah. Right? Well, and, you know, I mean, he is a weirdo. He's a weirdo in the desert, too. Yeah. Uh, it's not the like... The desert doesn't fix him. It's not like the Arabs are like, hooray. Yeah. What a man. Uh, until he starts to, you know, at least in the way the film depicts him, really lead them into not just victory in battle, but lead them into a new conception of what it is to be an Arab, which is a little like you really have to swallow a big pill that this, that this movie is trying to feed you that like Lawrence invented the idea of Arab identity. Well, except there's a weird case to be made during the Ottoman days, during the Turkish empire. And it's, and it's something kind of intrinsic to Islam that Islam in particular is a religion that in, in its interpretation was not confined to a certain race right you could be a muslim across all uh, across all nations and the idea of uh, of a muslim identity was that was the primary identity of people in arabia they were muslims first and you know there wasn't a sense of a united arab consciousness it was very tribal so i don't you're right that i don't think <laughs> i don't think te lawrence was the person to invent Arab identity, but it, but it is a compelling or interesting story that Arab identity didn't exist necessarily. I mean, the nation state is a very like European idea that has been sort of projected onto the entire rest of the world. Well, except a kingdom point. isn't, right? A kingdom yeah. isn't, a, is, is what would exist or a caliphate. Both of those things are, you know, the natural order of things. And that's what yeah. happened. That's what I mean. We came out of this whole story with a bunch of kingdoms and and caliphates. It's a, this is a complicated movie uh, because of the the twenty stories it it intersects with. It didn't seem like they would make Lawrence's race or background an issue, and it finally took that Turkish general to like strip him, grab his chest, and be like, "What are you doing here, white man?" Mm. Yeah, that general was, had a lot of other motivations too yeah he was right like, i you know he was like i don't care what you're doing here i'm just glad you're here 
You're very pretty. You know, uh, I, let me escort you to my uh, to my caning basement, <laughs> where I will leave the door open, suggestively. Yeah. This is the stuff that decides what he wants. I read that there was a play about T. E. Lawrence that uh, that the producer of this film took great umbrage with because it it entertained the idea that T. E. Lawrence was gay, and I kind of felt like he was coded gay in the movie. Yeah, weird choice uh, if you're trying to like machoize Lawrence to cast Peter O'Toole, like slight of figure and and blonde of hair. And like right. maybe some eyeliner? I don't know. <laughs> How about some of that? Let's oil him up and put him out, put him out there with Omar Sharif. And Let's just see what happens. What we should do is get him down on all fours, hmm. uh, take an ECU right into his face as he's being backblasted uh, for a couple of minutes. See how that feels. <laughs> Let's just shoot the footage. We don't have to use it. <laughs> this is a four-hour movie. We can we can add and subtract add, add as needed. I have a question about this, and that is, uh, I mean, there were liberties taken with his character in this film. Yes. And I wonder if... And with history. Sure. Yeah. I wonder if it, his sexuality, his coded sexuality, was made more palatable to someone in this time period by making him such a cold-blooded killer halfway through this film. He is distributing headshots to people in a way that that kind of makes you forget about how gentle he is in the first half of the film. Do you think that's intentional? I mean, they drew first blood at him. <laughs> you have it coming, Adam. <laughs> Uh, no, I think that that's that is a, a part of the story that's that's I think probably pretty true to life that Lawrence in his own reflection. Um, I, I, I mean, it's the it's part of what's dangerous about people like T. E. Lawrence at this time in history because you could be a British officer ostensibly supported by Britain and completely like um, Colonel Kurtzing mm-hmm. up in. You know, in an entire region, in a, you know, like galvanizing a people and with no oversight and you're kind of operating in a in a back theater. It's incredible. Like we we see wars of adventure all the time, but this is a man's war of adventure that he is uh, he's puppet stringing the whole thing. And I think that's why he's such a uh, such a popular character and was at the time was it's just like this is some kind of crazy Boy Scout uh, adventure that really reads as a pulp fiction almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love how like in that context the like it's really like his personal adventure that he's on but then like the the British and the French are like hey you know like we could turn this in a, into another opportunity for a little dab of colonialism while we're at it like <laughs> like it's like the most 1916 thinking of all time (laughs) it's like hey when this is all over (laughs) yeah they and that is really telegraphed throughout the film just the um the grab i mean the whole exist the whole reason he was sent there right he was sent there as the emissary of the arab bureau Mm -hmm. which was the british office designed to you know they didn't go in with a plan they they just wanted to figure out what do we do here like how do we 
pit these people against those people, but keep these people from getting too much power by pitting them against those people. Yeah, and it's not just speculative either. Like you, you actually get the scene in this film that goes like they are unable to govern for themselves. Like right. they must be colonized and fixed but in order in order to keep the the power on even, and the water going. Even before when Lawrence comes back from his original from the uh, the original sort of invasion of or the the capture of Aqaba, and he says to to the new commanding general. You know, I'm telling them that you have no interest, that we have no interest in Arabia. Is that true? And the guy is like, I, I, I loved the moment because the general had enough authority to just bareface lie. And I yeah. think that is, a, that, that is a sign of real power because Lawrence is like, I'm telling all of these Arab kings and princes that we are not going to betray them. And the general's like, oh, yeah, totally. You know, yeah, <laughs> tell them, tell them that. <laughs> 100%. A general could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't hurt his poll numbers. <laughs> it's another example of like, no matter what Lawrence does, the the generals still hate him and don't owe anything to him. Yeah, right. He's not one of them. Yeah. I mean, that's like the advantage of a bureaucracy is you get a bunch of shit done and then, and then there's like barriers for blame when it needs to be allotted. Yeah, it's not like General Allenby is going to shoulder the burden. I love that moment of uh, of Orance getting to Damascus first, like Orance. by a day and a half. Like he's there. He's already on the ground. Yeah. And their bewilderment. After slaughtering a retreating column of Turks. Yeah, he's been busy. You know, this whole this, this all of this overlaps exactly with Gallipoli. Those guys are playing rugby over by the by the pyramids while Orance is drawing yeah, his maps. They're huh? trying to get a refund for those little statues from the shopkeeper. <laughs> Same place. They were, they ran right past Orens. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Like in, uh, is it Hot Shots where, uh, where the two sheens see each other from the boat? I think that's yeah. Hot Shots part dieu. Oh. Are that's, those on our list? I love you in Wall Street! That's a pork chop <laughs> film. Yeah, you know be, that might be pork chop time. I've been getting some. Uh, I've been getting some pushback from people on the internet who are fans of our show. Who are uh, mm. who are what? Uh, yeah, people people that are fans giving us pushback. Yeah, and the, what the and the the theory that they're advancing is that the pork chop feed does not need to just be trash. They said, wow. "What if you guys covered war adjacent films that weren't garbage piles?" Hmm. And I was like intrigued people may be more inclined to support the show financially if yeah. there was something in it for them and the I, pork chop feed they said wow you know i i know for a fact that's never occurred to either ben nor adam mm. but let i me disagree <laughs> wholeheartedly there's some really good movies in the pork chop feed it's got wonder woman terminator 2 judgment day triple frontier oh. edge of tomorrow spy game lord of war rogue one oh, those are all great yeah, they are all right yeah all right, all every right. one of them there's okay. also some bad movies like rambo 3 and <laughs> <laughs> commando and rocky 4 all right you're right you're right there are good movies i would say it's more good movies than bad i take it back I mean, I'm not yeah. paying attention, obviously. There's recency bias, obviously, because we've, do we've done two Stallone films in a row as of this recording. But right, right, right. I'm hoping for a third. Get some, get <laughs> some, going for the hat trick? Get some over the top <laughs> in there. I'm through talking. I was reading that Lawrence knew about the Sykes-Picot agreement 
long before uh, it is depicted in this film. He he was aware that the French and the British had designs on uh, a colonial outcome for they basically running the Ottoman Empire as a as a colonial holding of France and England after the war, like way way before uh, it's you know it, like like it's it drops like a bomb in this movie when they tell him about it and he's fucking livid, but. Apparently he he did most of the you know getting the uh, Arab revolt going, knowing about that as being like the long term plan. I think that that is in the movie throughout. Like Lawrence, uh, like when he has that conversation with Allenby, and Allenby says, "Yes, absolutely, we have no designs." Lawrence knows. So you're saying it's kind of implied the same way as his homosexuality is even more. I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I think his, I think his homosexuality is only that that's just sort of like a tonal, like a tint, yeah. but, but the idea that he is working within a, within a system that where he knows the outcome, right? He's, he's a member of the British officer class and we see, him interacting with them. He knows he's an outsider and he knows his viewpoint will never prevail, which is why he's, I think he, I mean, he's enjoying his adventure so much. He's, I think he becomes deluded by his power such that he begins to forget that he, that he's not a world maker. But I think that, I think a lot of his shock and, and uh, dismay is, is a, is a put on. At that moment, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's over dramatism on his part. And I think the movie is showing us that he engages in a lot of wishful thinking about what everyone is going to do right at various times. And I think the narration of the film or the, the, the Lawrence were shown, we're not meant to trust him by then. He's let us down, but repeatedly he's let the, the Arabs down repeatedly always with the, the cameras always focused on him. He's the nominal hero, but but I don't think he's a heroic figure by that point in time. I think he's so compromised that we can't trust his reactions. Do we want to rate it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm watching the gears turn in Adam's head. Pretty much all there is to say, right? <laughs> is he supposed to be speaking Arabic with everybody? Yes. In this movie? It's it's like one it's it's maybe the most confusing like language movie because there's no I get like there's like very few times when any of the Arab characters are in a room with any of the non T.E. Lawrence British characters like I guess when he brings Farage into the officer's mess that's like maybe one of you know a handful of brief scenes where you're like oh yeah this guy like Farage can't communicate with anybody in this room so he is going to be silent for this scene I mean, we know that Faisal, King Faisal and uh, Sharif Ali both are, you know, had, had Western educations and, and they routinely are speaking to people in English. There's no distinction between the way they speak in English and the way they speak to one another in presumably Arabic. But Lawrence is famous for his command of multiple languages. He's shown at the beginning of the movie reading an Arab, uh, Arabic newspaper. So he quotes the Quran back at Faisal. Yeah. Eat that. Right. 
That was a fun moment. That's when he, he <laughs> that's when he wins Faisal's heart. A lot of prosthetic noses in this movie. Yeah. The one that Anthony Quinn is wearing is so badly matched to the brown makeup that they covered him in also it's like a it's like a totally distinct color it 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 looks like those glasses with a fake nose on them that people wear in comedy films i really thought that omar sharif's ali character was going to steal the movie from o'toole but it's anthony quinn that steals it from omar sharif i thought every scene with them together was great anthony quinn is a tough that that is a tough uh, like degree to to ever match. Yeah. yeah, he's so he's so wonderful. Yeah, I really like him a lot in this movie. Did his own makeup for the film? Really? I mean, not surprising. Did he did he get an Academy Award for achievement in makeup? This film won like twenty Oscars. Yeah, it's funny that he would negotiate for that. Like, no, no, no. I get. I do my own makeup. <laughs> yeah. Weird. Yeah. He. Uh, I guess apparently, like, would put the makeup on before getting to set, and the first day he showed up, David Lean, the director, mistook him for a native and asked his assistant to ring Quinn and notify him that they were replacing him with his new arrival. Wow. That's gonna <laughs> feel great as an actor, right? That's not insulting. Yeah. That that means no. you've nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I love his character. He's like, he's this local i i don't know he's not a he's not a a prince he's not at the same level as faisal but he's like he's like the leader of this army of like thousands of guys but he also personally patrols all his own wells with his son (laughs) yeah that was a fun introduction to him yeah i mean what what's strange Uh, about about the the cast of characters represented here all of these people were vying for had for centuries, their families had vied for control over wells and areas. And now they were beginning for the first time this process of like trying to consolidate into a nation. And I mean, it's an astonishing moment in history and astonishing to think that what we think of as the status quo in the Middle East, these nations, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Iraq, Jordan, like all of them are 20th century developments. And prior to it, there were no, there was no sort of sense of this region as we sense it now. It's right next to, uh, you know, Northern and East Africa, which is another part of the world that is full of international boundaries that are just like arrow straight lines. And (laughs) And it's like got a lot of the same kinds of problems. Yeah, but you know, the, it, but it isn't just this. This air, the problems here are not just that that um, they're they're straight borders, right? Because a lot of those are borders that are just drawn in the middle of of completely desert regions. They're not. It's not quite the same as like here's a border and half the Kurds are on one side and half the Kurds are on the other. It's not like the border between Somalia and Kenya, which is like just a just a divide and conquer border. Right. No, it's a it's a it's a it's a state of affairs where what we think of as the Saudi family, you know, Ibn Saud at this point was I mean, he had he was consolidating power. And for for a while after World War One, 
King Faisal was like king of Iraq and Syria, but Ibn Saud was, you know, over here in, in Mecca and Medina or Medina at consolidating power. And pretty soon, you know, any one of these princes could have, could have laid claim to, a, to being the sort of king of the Arabs, leader of the Arabs. They didn't discover right. oil in Arabia until the mid thirties. So there was no sense. Uh, I think the, I think the British had a sense that there was maybe oil or mineral wealth in Arabia, but there, but there wasn't any money there yet. So it was all, it was all this kind of great game of strategery, but you know, like the, like Aqaba is in Jordan now. Was it just like if they could control Aqaba, the the British could supply arms to the Arabs. Is that is that the whole idea of taking it? Yeah, it's another front. If you're if you're imagining um, Damascus or Jerusalem being the being like the prize, and you can get to it through that Gulf of Aqaba, uh, and you can supply that. It's like the rear action, right? If you're attacking. Damascus from the sea, straight from the Mediterranean, but the but the Ottomans can can resupply from your rear. That that's a vulnerability. But if you have Aqaba, you know, then you can execute a pincer on all of the Levant. So that, so that the Ottomans would have they would have a split. Their, their attention would be split on two different things that they're trying to defend. Right, and then the whole second act of the film, where Lawrence is just like basically just waging a war of chaos in their rear where they can't, you know, they're just trying to figure out like they can't seem to move a train across the desert without getting it blown up. Adam knows about chaos in his rear. <laughs> That's a, uh, those are great scenes. All the, all the train explosions. I was not expecting to see as much train chaos as we got in this yeah. movie. Train combat is like the primary thing that happens in, in the second half of this film. Yeah. Do, do you have a train pedant? Did, did train pedants enter in here, Ben? I don't have a train pedant, but I do have a good moment of pedantry for this film. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't fit anywhere naturally, so I could throw it in here. I've got a train thing to say that does fit in naturally here, okay. if that would be Okay, better. do it. Uh, when they were scouting for locations of where to shoot these train scenes, they actually came upon an old blown up train. Really? Whoa. And they found it half buried in the sand and it was like perfectly desert preserved the way old airplanes are preserved in the desert, like not an inch of rust on it, just out there in the desert. Blown up from yeah, the from, time. From the Lawrence raids. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah, how, like that's how you know you're a successful film scout crew is when you actually find the location. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. Not just an approximation. That's great. When David Lean told them to comb the desert, they uh, they took their combs out and they actually found something. Yeah. And did they use it in the film? Why not? Why wouldn't you? Right. Just just uh, scoop out those rails. Scoop them rails. Um <laughs> Yeah, the I mean, like he has to do the trains, right? Because he doesn't have any big guns. He doesn't have artillery, so he's he's forced. It's it's sort of like guerrilla war stuff that he's able to accomplish, given the way he's been armed. Right, and the 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 Ottomans are being are being attacked, like in a lot of different places. The attempted invasion at Gallipoli being just one, but they're their empire at this point, although it had 
it had already sort of decayed mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit. Like it still encompassed so much of what we think of as the modern or what we think of as Arabia or, or um, Asia minor or whatever, you know, like yeah, they, they all of Syria, Lebanon. Um, yeah. They've got Gallipoli and, and Aqaba over on this side. And then on the other side, the uh, Armenians are just betraying them left and right. Oh, to I the know. Russians. I know. <laughs> the Kremlin's got a hell of a sense of humor. That Aqaba raid was so beautifully shot in a film that is full of beautiful shots. That slow, wide-angle pan, that territorial pan of all the horses flowing through the city like like a flood, like flood water yeah. going through. Really, really amazing. And and to and to finish the sequence on the gun aimed the wrong way was perfect. <laughs> I mean, what, that that's an that is an example of one of these like continuous shots that I hear you guys talk about all the time, but truly one, right? Yeah. It's like an almost an entire film canister. Yeah. Uh where you couldn't how are you going to reset that? Okay, like right. all 900 <laughs> like horsemen go back to like, one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like uh it, you you just never see this scale in filmmaking how could you and yeah how could yeah. you do this now without cgi you wouldn't you, you wouldn't be able to afford it. it it would be insane to do this without cgi now but it's insane to do it with cgi because this looks so incredible i don't know uh how you guys watched this film but the version uh i watched was a, a 4k restoration of the film it was a print that was restored in the eighties and the late eighties. And then, uh, it's been, it's been scanned in 4k and it is just breathtakingly beautiful. I watched it on my phone in the bathtub as you do, uh, when you're <laughs> watching one of the great films, because you know, if you turn your phone sideways, it is kind of a letterbox oh, yeah, could, shape. Uh, you don't have to watch it. You know, for a long time I was watching it with the phone up and down and then right. I was like, wait, 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 <laughs> if I turn it sideways, I get a, like twice the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in fact, I saw it about a month and a half ago also at Cinerama here That's in Cinerama, yeah. which was a nice big, nice big picture. Are you a mixed popcorn man? I don't like it. I don't want that. I don't want that chocolate popcorn. You want regular ass popcorn? I want popcorn. They do a great popcorn there. I, I like the popcorn, chocolate popcorn. It's like, it's like, give me one handful of chocolate popcorn. I'm done. I used to be Raisinets man. And, uh, what? How and now old? I am. Are you 95 years old? Well, now I'm about to get even older to you. Now I am scalding hot coffee at a movie theater oh, guy. Oh, I've been doing that for a and long time. And popcorn. Coffee and a hot dog. Let me tell you, coffee <laughs> wow. and popcorn really gets things moving because by the time you get home. I would I would have a lot of chaos in the rear if I had a hot coffee at the beginning of a movie. <laughs> it's great. I love it. I love it now. And I'm the old man that takes the lid off and puts the coffee in the in the in the cup holder. Wow. Very dangerous man in a movie theater. You're like a cross country trucker. Yeah. <laughs> Raisin nuts, coffee and a hot dog. It's a hell of a combination. Settle I've in. I've never eaten a movie theater hot dog. That, that's definitely not me. <laughs> you pay the traffic tickets, I'll get you in the saddle. <laughs> Cinerama down here has a great hot dog, actually. It was surprising the print that I saw at Cinerama, how damaged it was. You know, I, really? Because we're watching it. We're not watching a 4K restoration there. We're watching a f- like film go through yeah. the projector. Yeah, it was probably a 70 millimeter print, right? It was, yeah. But it was, but it had some 
it had some visible damage. I've often found that to be the case going to the big 70 millimeter re-release films that places like the Cinerama will often have. Like I'm expecting perfection where what you're getting is like, this is the rugged ass film. Yeah. That has been just kept in cans for decades. It's been in cans. This was the one that showed here in 62. Yeah, yeah. That probably gets projected a few times a year, and it's been getting projected a few times a year since for like 30 years. You know, it's it's a physical object that is going to sustain wear and tear. The score just introduces us to the scope of the desert with like, just like (laughs) hits us. It's such an incredible moment of filmmaking where you're just like, I am not, this is not a thing where I'm being shown the desert. It is a thing where I am like being invited to apprehend the desert. Like you cannot but fail to be awed. That moment where he tests the acoustics of the canyon is another moment like you just get a sense of the size of the place not by not also by how it looks but in addition to how it sounds and the score and the echoes are a big part of that yeah it's a movie that really takes its time and i think like lets you marinate in those moments too like you're you're kind of learning the rules of the desert if you don't already know them but also just kind of like settling into the mindset of the desert. It seems impossible to be surprised in the desert by anyone, but there are compositions and and scenes where the camera pans to the right and there's Anthony Quinn. Yeah. Where the hell did he come from? <laughs> yeah. Where he's just like, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing, Englishman? And he's, it's like, how did he get there? That scene where, where Lawrence is out there testing out his robes is another yeah. like, ah, like, how do you get snuck up upon in the desert? Well, you don't. And, and the thing is, those aren't those aren't unbelievable because yeah. we do. We are. We're never given a, a sense in this movie that there's magic afoot. There's no magical realism here. But you absolutely do, as you just said, Ben, are introduced to the rules of the desert yeah. and understand them to be very, very different from the rules other places. And part of that yeah. is this this ability that people have to kind of materialize because they just they know how it works. That whole that whole scene where Orance is like doing his extremely dramatic Englishman in the desert, like trying to solve this problem, but his two his two little uh, attendants like creep up on him, and then gradually they're sitting there, and all th- all three of them are sitting, and Lawrence is not conscious of them because he's so deep in his mind. But that, you know, that whole sequence takes five minutes to unfold. And, and I mean, for me, at least this movie's, as you say, almost four hours long and I do not see a single bit of fat in it. There's nothing I would cut. You learn how big the desert is because the movie often will show you three minutes of a man walking toward you Mm -hmm. and you're like, still not here. (laughs) He's there. He is still. And yet. To take even ten seconds out would be to would be to have lost something, and I don't. I don't. Right. There aren't four hour movies anymore, thank God. Or the ones that do attempt to be four hours long are ones where it, they kitchen sink it, right? Like I don't. I, it's always a director that's like, the, my true vision is four hours long, and it's just like, no, you could have cut. Like, <laughs> you know, Apocalypse Now, Redia is a garbage fire. Apocalypse Now is a great movie. Almost. 
but what would you cut out of this? You just, I mean, you could, you could make this an hour and a half long if you, if you just did the action. It's like, it's like using the length for, you know, the thing like, like, like the Gossim rescue when, when they realize that they've gotten off of the sun's anvil and Gossim didn't make it. And Lawrence goes back for him. Like, you know, that this guy has like moments left in his life unless somebody comes and gets him. And, and that just raises like you're tense through that whole scene. And it's a, it's a super slow moving scene. If we just cut to the, hey, guys, where's Gossam? To Lawrence going and getting him, you never feel the danger of Gossam being stranded in the desert the way you must when that sequence lasts 15 minutes. And you and the camera keeps panning back to the baking sun. And yeah. each shot, the sun is larger on the screen until it like. Yeah. Until it's so bright that it turns blue. That was one of those shots that, uh, Ben, did you read this? Like, there are lenses in this movie that were only used for some scenes and then never used again. They're like in in film museums. Because they were torched? A 450 millimeter lens was used for the Gossam in the desert scene. And that was it. It's the Lawrence of of Arabia lens. And now it's under glass somewhere. What would you use it for if you could take it out? I mean, a 450 are like the bazooka length sports lenses that you see on the sidelines of games shooting still photography. That's like to give you a sense of its size. Right. But they're they're exposing sixty five millimeter film on this film, right? On this, right? Yeah. That's what's running through the camera. Yeah. So. So like the the length the focal length is that's less significant than a 450 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter shoot. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, but but it's still a big but ass still just like fucking thing. Yeah, like probably probably a fifty thousand dollar piece of equipment. Yeah. Used it one time. And wow. Speaking of money, I I was reading that uh, Jose Ferrer, the the Turkish officer, was paid the most of anyone in this movie. He was paid twenty five thousand dollars and a Porsche. <laughs> that that was the he he was the the most well compensated actor in the film. And he got to grab Peter O'Toole's nipple. Awesome. Well, uh, <laughs> and, and do you know why? He was in a in a position of power. Like he was a he was like a big name, and they they really wanted him for the part. And he was like eh. he gave he that was like his fu number. Like like I'm not gonna say no. Without a number. That's Jose Ferrer's golf stream right there. Yeah. Peter O'Toole uh, was quoted saying that he learned more about screen acting from Ferrer than he could have in any acting class. Wow. Interesting. I mean, given that this yeah. movie also has Anthony Quinn, Alec Guinness, and Omar <laughs> Sharif. Yeah. Is that shade yeah. on them? <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you guys can yeah, learn like, a I thing or two if- from Jose over there, guys. <laughs> And like, did they shoot that stuff first or something? Like, I don't understand how like how like Peter O'Toole, a a guy who'd been in like one other movie before this, and has like a five minute scene with one guy, and is like, that's the guy that I learned the most from. Hard to fathom this era of filmmaking, and I think there's 1962. There are a lot of epic movies getting made about classical themes. Um, this is the era of the Gladiator movie and the and the Cleopatra movie and whatnot. But like to try and situate yourself in the making of this movie, 
I just can't, I can't imagine the spectacle. I can't imagine. I mean, it's not like they went back to their trailer and sat and looked at their phone in between shots. Like they're on location that what are they They're living in tents? I would love to see the heart of darkness about Lawrence of Arabia. I read that uh, (laughs) the King of Jordan was like, come enjoy, shoot your movie in Jordan. It'll be great. And he opened up a ton of doors for the production, like made a ton of it happen. When the movie came out, he's like, no one is watching this movie in Jordan. This is super (laughs) fucked the way they make Arabs look. And for a long time, you couldn't watch Lawrence of Arabia there. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, I imagine this would be, it's not just, it's it's messed up how they made Arabs look, but you know, it really... A lot of the a lot of the mythology that supports royal families, a lot of the a lot of the I mean, it requires that you believe that there's some continuum that supports their claim to to rule somewhere. Right. right? Then, and so they're they're the 18th great grandson of Muhammad or and to 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 picture or to 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 be shown this kind of the origin story of of some of these nation states and some of these royal families could really be destabilizing. I think if this was widely kind shown. of breaks the spell, it does right because it's just like, oh yeah, it could you know our king who rules over us with uh, with total authoritarianism. Yeah. Also, yeah. he was just some son. Of, he was like the fourteenth son of some guy. Is this why we can't have lights and water? Because this is what. Uh, this is what our government looks like behind closed doors. No lights and water. That like that kind of dysfunction. I think it's it. This movie is like in such an interesting place because like when Lawrence is talking to the Arabs, like he's very like condescending about their like sectarian or or intertribal conflicts. But then like the the way that those conflicts are irrelevant to him is exactly the same way that like the larger. You know, like the war between France and Germany is to the Arabs, like, like it kind of like shines a light on the irrelevancy of both disagreements. Right. There is no gold in Aqaba. This movie came out in '62, right? There was a, the the king of Saudi Arabia, King Saud, who was the son of Abdulaziz, who was the founder of the House of Saud. He his reign ended in October of sixty two, and his son, the new Faisal, uh, took over from him that same year. So this movie comes out right at the transition between the son of Ibn Saud and the and his grandson, like the the same. So imagine that. I mean, you you're you're the legitimacy of your royal family of the of the nation of Saudi Arabia is is in still in this really like maybe not fragile state but certainly I don't think that there I mean there there is living memory operating uh in those places th- that dates back to before there was any kind of unified arab control so that's got this movie has has to come out like a bomb Right, We're, I mean, Israel is still in its first twenty years. Yeah, this is a movie that that must have been incredibly politically charged there that it w- that it wouldn't have been in the West. Right, you know, for in the West, it reads as a reevaluation of our own duplicity, or or rather, British duplicity. The duplicity element of it is really fascinating because it, it it really does show like 
what a jam up some of this stuff was for the Arabs. A jam up that many of them helped with? That had to feel bad. I think a lot, an awful lot of Arabs during World War I naturally sided with the Ottomans. The Ottomans had ruled there for many, many, I mean, for centuries. And there was a sense of them all as Muslim brothers. There wasn't a sense if you were going to be, if you were an Arab nationalist, I think a lot of that just meant that you wanted more Arab autonomy within the Ottoman Empire. There wasn't really a, a very clear picture that uh, that there was going to be total liberation. It was some of that l- that liberation ideology was invented by the British and French in order to inspire the the tribes to to fight the Ottomans. It wasn't it wasn't the, like the idea of Arab nationalism was certainly real, but I don't think the I don't think self governance happened completely naturally. I think that might have been or absolutely was part of the part of a British strategy to go in and say, no, 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 you're going to, we're going to give this, everybody gets freedom. That was the world war one story, right? That was the whole, that was the whole Wilson doctrine. Hmm. All the peoples of the world will become self-governing after the war. This is the end. And then it turned out that he couldn't deliver on that promise. And the, and the British and the French divided up the world. I think he was an idealist, but the British and the French used that carrot as a way of getting people into the fight. It almost seems analogous to um, like arming people that you don't necessarily have a ideological agreement with, but just a common enemy. Right. Except you're arming them with the idea of their own nationhood. Yeah. I always thought the mind was the best weapon. (laughs) Wow. There's just a little bit of that dosed into a couple of characters here, right? By by pitting Omar Sharif's uh, doing it for the causeness against Anthony Quinn's doing it for the moneyness, is that a way that this film attempts to to tell that part of the story? Well, and also the numerous times that that Lawrence is asked, "Why are you doing this?" Yeah. And Faisal kind of rips him a new one a couple of times where where he's like, you're just another British guy who's in love with the desolation. That's, a, I think, a pretty damning uh, evaluation of Lawrence's motivations. And he definitely both 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 the British and the Arabs recognize that Lawrence does not have clear or pure motives. He's just boys outing in general. Are you rooting for Lawrence in this movie? I think the film is constructed in a really interesting way because there are checkpoints to it, and those checkpoints occur every time he goes back to base. Those moments are so different from each other, and he comes out of them either more emboldened or beaten down and and ready to quit or whatever. And I felt very different about Lawrence almost every time he goes home. Like I felt sorry for him when he's in Jerusalem and like no one knows him or cares and he tries to be pals. Like all of those uh, check-ins are so instructive about Lawrence's motivations afterwards. And I feel like that's a constantly 
changing thing throughout the movie. And by changing his motivations, it makes it hard to either always root for him or always root against him in the way that you often feel about a main character or a hero character in a war film, you know? And I, and that kept me off balance in a fun way. It kept me interested in what his deal was because his, uh, his methods and his circumstances were often surprising. Like I was very surprised when, I think we come out of the intermission and he's standing on top of that train and that guy's shooting it at him and he's like, he's godlike. He's like Christ in that moment. He can't be killed. And Omar Sharif is like, what happened to you, man? <laughs> you were just the guy who took uh, Farage into into a base 40 minutes ago for lemonade. That, you're not that guy now. I'm not sure how to feel about you. And me watching the movie wasn't sure about how to feel about him in those moments either. In the best tradition of character studies, it's it's not trying to, the film is not putting its thumb on the scale one way or another in terms of like the likability of the main character. It's more about an inquiry into this character. Um, and I think that it it's sort of unfortunate that some of the historical stuff is so inaccurate because like this is probably how most people know this guy and I, I was reading that like his biographer was like this this is not this is not the dude <laughs> this ain't it like it's a, maybe a good movie but like from a historical standpoint it is pretty wide of the mark and not a great way of thinking about like what motivated lawrence the scale is so epic yeah we, what we see in that moment of him standing on the train is something we see in a lot of war movies which is that one charismatic leader suddenly becomes superhuman in the eyes of the soldiers. We're watching it in the theater and going, you know, wow, look at this golden boy. And so many war movies have a character at their center that becomes this galvanizing, inspirational, I'll follow you anywhere kind of leader. I mean, gradually we see Faisal start to employ Lawrence and Lawrence's legend. Like Faisal's no dummy. Yeah. And so we see that he's no longer, he never Lawrence was. Lawrence is great for Faisal's business. Right. He never, <laughs> Faisal was never under his spell. Right. But the fact that so many Arabs are under his spell serves Faisal. Yeah. And at, at that point, there's a real switch in your understanding of like, how am I rooting for Lawrence? When you see that Lawrence is is a pawn yeah. and starts to be employed a lot more as a pawn by other players with bigger pictures, and you realize like, oh, he's just a he's just like a charismatic raider. You know, he's just like a he's a pirate, basically. Yeah, when when he says like I'm gonna give these guys their freedom, it's like naive at that point. Yeah, you don't have that power, my friend. I think it's a little bit of both, Ben. Like, I totally get with your character steadiness that the film deploys at Lawrence, but he really does grow and change in interesting ways throughout. I guess I kept on waiting for him to be the hero that I sort of promised or expected from an epic story about one person. I mean, I think that that scene right at the beginning when they're, you know, they're all leaving the, the funeral and like he's impossible to sum up in 
a couple of lines God, for all these people. Did you get total Alexander vibes from that moment in the way that at the end of Alexander, uh, the the historian's <laughs> like, you know, I guess we'll never really know the true story because no one really knew him. Like that's that moment at the beginning of Lawrence of Arabia. At that's that's what the funeral scene does. Yeah. No one really knows him, but maybe the film you're about to watch could be <laughs> sort of an idea or something. I watched the beginning bit again at the end because I felt like you wanted to know who those guys were. Yeah, like the like all their suits are not the same as their uniforms, and their their facial hair has changed a little bit. Like you get the the one general from the beginning in Cairo, but like he's not the he's not the main general that we interact with for the for the majority of the movie like the, it was I, I i like needed to remind myself who it was that uh was speaking and in what in and in what way that was an aspect of this film that felt very dated because i think if this film were made now there is no way that we wouldn't have gotten a, a bookend to that where we're back at the funeral or we're over his motorcycle crash like pulling up into the sky or whatever is that because he's still a very famous person at the time that this film is released? Like, yes. Uh, but but um, I thought it was really telling the cultural difference between then and now because every one of those commanders or former political people uh, that were British all sort of disavowed knowing him or knowing him closely. As, as they're standing on the steps and they're like, well, I didn't really know the man. <laughs> And then the American, Lowell Thomas, is like, I knew him well. He was amazing. <laughs> a very close friend. <laughs> Which is the most American thing yeah. for an American to do. And now I don't know if there's anyone in the world where every, everybody has been so touched by American Americanism now that I think even in England, the in inclination would be like, oh, yes, oh, quite close. Yes, I knew him. Uh, oh, yes. And uh, that's like that, that reticence or that... Um, you know, that, that, that sort of careful, like, I would never claim to be a close friend of someone that I didn't consider a friend. Um, yeah. Well, they have that's different like, libel laws over there. That's, right. you know? that's true. I, uh, uh, an internet pedant uh, noticed something that was wrong with this scene. Would you guys like to hear a goof from the IMDb goof section? Yes. Following Lawrence's memorial service, the view of the front of St. Paul's Cathedral shows that the left-hand clock face, the north, is missing. Oh. This was actually destroyed during the Second World War, which did not begin until four years after T.E. Lawrence died. Busted! Should have gotten up on St. Paul's and put that clock back. You know, there's a little bit of left yeah. clock in all of us, I think. <laughs> my, my hope in, in, in watching movies like this, it, uh, over the course of the time that we've been making this show, and on behalf of the audience, is that... When you say like, "Am I rooting for Lawrence?" This the the events of this movie are situated right at the crossroads of one of the most fundamentally like um, key and broken foreign policy, and you know, like th this is this is the heart of a question that plagues us today. This is the heart of a of a of a region that was that was not exactly shaped and formed by the events depicted, but certainly powerfully shaped. And we're living in the, we're living in the, the world of consequences. Much like that desert Canyon, the echoes of Lawrence are still with us. Wow. 
Wow. He was just sitting on that egg this whole time, this giant ostrich <laughs> egg. <laughs> but to, to come into this movie, I think we all are, you know, I think you would come into this movie naturally thinking the European powers and their colonial uh, instincts are the bad guys ultimately. And that Arab nationalism is, are the good guys until it gets turned by the bad guys uh, until it gets turned by colonialism into something bad. And, you know, you want to go in with a clear picture and certainly depending on where you are on the Israel Palestine question, you know, that you walk into a movie like this. So laden with your own like presuppositions about what the, what, what sides there are even. And I think the, the primary value of a movie like this is to come out of it more confused, not less. <laughs> because right. if you walk into this movie thinking that you know, based on what we, based on the world we're living in now. I'm going to call that the Stallone defense. And I'm going to put that in my back pocket <laughs> for future episodes of Friendly Fire. But there, there, there's a lot that's inaccurate, but, there, but there's also a lot that's pretty accurately depicted. Or at least there's, there are worlds explored here that don't get explored in conversations about the Middle East. So to dismiss it as inaccurate or to come into this movie, watch it, and come out the other side with the exact same opinions you had about it, about this region and what needed to happen. I think you're not, you couldn't, you couldn't be paying attention because at this moment in time during this war with the sides, with the lines drawn where they were and the lack of lines other places, what is the best possible outcome? What could have happened in this moment that would have that that you would prefer right like leaving it to Auto the ottoman empire isn't great nope. for these people the the sykes pico agreement is not a great outcome like in the scene where they're trying to set up like a deliberative body at the end about how much like growing up and like having a civics class in high school uh, prepares you to think about something like that and if you're like if your experience of life up until the time you're in a room in a deliberative body is like blowing up trains and stealing things off of it because that's the only way you're going to be paid for your participation in a war, like how ill-prepared you would be for for that. Like, yeah, I mean, if you're coming from a standpoint where you are a you're a leader of a tribe and that is a um and that's a thing you inherited from your father and his father before you and you have a you have clearly delineated territory and and clearly understood enemies and competitors within your own region and like a a a well defined right to just shoot somebody if they're like taking some water out of a well that you have a claim to right like and this is a this is a time when you could be you could be a powerful leader and not read or write or have had any education outside of you know the the outside of a guy sitting in your tent and reading the Quran to you i love that scene with ali where uh was it anthony quinn's characters like what What's this children's book doing here, Ali? What the hell? And Ali's like, I'm just trying to like, I'm just trying to read, man. Yeah. You don't have to shame me. Yeah. I'm learning to read. What about, well, that whole scene where Anthony Quinn, uh, the, they invade the Turks. He finds that, that uh, chest that's full of what appear to be either stock certificates yeah. or gold certificates. I mean, like it's clearly, <laughs> it's clearly full of money. Yeah. 
and he's just throwing it in. The, there's no gold here. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all these guys are on the world stage and all of, and, and come out the other side of it as uh, Treaty of Versailles or whatever. All of a sudden, there are nations here and you're the king of Jordan. You're the king of Iraq. That's that, that's heavy. It's heavy. And it's very hard to it's very hard to look back and armchair quarterback it unless you're coming at it, you know, unless you have been taught like a strictly anti-colonialist viewpoint and you never waver from it. So the bad guys are always clear to you. It's always England. And the good guys are anyone who's allied against England. But even in that case, who's that in this movie? You know, so I watched I watched this movie on um, my Apple TV and there are like a series of screensavers that come up. And I was just like sitting in my living room thinking about the movie after it was over. And the screensaver that comes up is aerial video of Dubai just glittering at night. And I was like, what the fuck? Why this of all the things? That, like it could have been it could have been porpoises frolicking in the water and it's glittering footage of Dubai. Like it's such a head fuck to think about like like that. Like Dubai was built within a hundred years of the stuff that happens in this movie. Yeah. I mean, not built, but like that version of Dubai was built. We're 25 years in this movie, 25 years before we introduced the, the idea that there is also going to be a Jewish homeland in this same place. And the British are playing a central role in that too. And so looking at this, you know, the, 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 the notion that they're, you know, that, that, that this was a stable region full of, full of like long settled and peaceful people. And then you're introducing the Jews. There's just a lot to unpack. And there's a lot that you cannot fully unpack, I guess, is the thing. Uh, at least I can't. In a way, the introduction of the Jews was like a great, uh, you know, like really, really aligned a lot of the, a lot of the people in this region. It was a galvanizer, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you uh, if you have a lot of thoughts on these matters, please write us. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be an episode of Friendly Fire without giving out the uh, the Friendly Fire email address. Somebody tried to go around this email address by sending something to Robs. Don't do that. Robs doesn't police what we say. Send it to go fuck yourself at maximum funkenstein dot. I could see sex. that would be confusing to some people. Because uh, Rob's email address is go fuck yourself at robschulte.net. So, oh, yeah. That, that like auto corrects in the email. So tell us, what does download mean? There's some stuff in this movie that is very condescending toward the Arabs in the film. Like the deliberative body scene is like feels very, very much like a, a scold on their inability to build some kind of consensus in that in that room. But. You also get scenes like where the Anthony Quinn characters like talked out of killing all of the guys that just walked across the desert for taking some water and like really sees some reason in, in a, in a moment where, you know, it like when you've like pulled your gun out and announced that you're going to kill everybody, it, it can be hard to back down from a position like that. So I like, I feel like that is something that the movie did really nicely. I mean, obviously like it's a Western Hector and Brownface that's being depicted doing it, but like these people aren't caricatures, I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
that's hard to do, but I, I'm, I'm convinced that you come out of this movie feeling like every single person was, um, either corrupt or naive. Right. And that, and uh, often corrupt and naive. Like, I don't think there's anyone that you come out the other side feeling like, Oh, well that was, they were, they were great. And that was a plain dealing good dude. And I feel like, like, uh, like Anthony Quinn, for instance, is a character that is always, he's, he is always consistent, right? He never betrays himself. He never, uh, he never falters, but he's also not ready for not ready to be negotiating with London and New York. He just doesn't understand the terms. He doesn't understand the, the game. He's all, yeah. he's always going to be operating at a kind of tribal leader level. One of my favorite low key shots in this movie is after that scene where they've stayed up all night trying to figure out how to run a city uh, Anthony Quinn and Omar Sharif's character go down into the plaza and Anthony Quinn just disappears into the black. He's just gone. I love that moment. Yeah. And the, you know, the only, the only thing, the only reason the British have this, uh, this authority is that this is the, these are the, the waning years of the whole British empire machine. There's no British guy in this movie. That's smart except for the, except for the real politician who runs the Arab League. I don't want to give away who I might think your guy is, but God, Mr. Dryden is just... The guy you want to be in this movie is just the the guy behind the guy behind the guy who's got his own chair in every meeting. He had, he gets a drink in every meeting. He's just there to quip. Dryden is so slick. You, you never pin him down on anything. He always sort of deflects. He always goes like, well, it's up to you, old boy. He's wearing a three-piece suit in Cairo, and yet he always seems quite cool. Oh, his hair is perfect throughout. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's so wonderful. But also, he's the one, right? That yeah. is, he's the one that has the big picture plan. He's the puppet master. He has the bigger map. He kind of feels like CIA. Yeah. He talks to Q. <laughs> uh, yeah, and if, uh, if you're curious about Q, uh, just research it on Reddit. <laughs> they'll they'll tell you what Q is. I'll settle for Elhoras. I would say that like the maybe the one character that isn't corrupt or naive is Jackson Bentley, the the reporter, and and he like will tell you if you ask him what he's there for, like to like make the case to the American public to get into the war by finding like cool heroes to depict having fun adventures. <laughs> that moment where he's like. God, I've never seen anyone killed with a sword before. Really missed that shot. <laughs> like that's, I think in a lot of actors' hands, uh, that's a hateable moment. It would make you hate that character yeah. for expressing that feeling, but it's so true to his character in that moment. I I really loved him in that scene. That is exactly what he's there to do. He's He's true <laughs> to himself and to everyone else. And and I guess that's the other crazy thing about this is that although I am the truly middle-aged person on this show, these are the events here are within I wouldn't say that Ben and I could die very young. That's true. you could be in middle age. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Ben could get colitis or something. Yeah. Um I I almost died on an airplane recently, you know. I I'm uh, I'm constantly on death's door one way or another. 
So and, and by you'll that, outlive us all, John. That's what we're trying to say. By that standard, <laughs> maybe I'm the youngest of the group, but we're we're living in the time of this movie in in a way. Even though it feels like it happened a million years ago, or we're watching it, and it just seems like right. This is some something from a sepia toned past. Did Ali break confidence to tell me Faisal was the king of Syria and Iraq? Were like were those considered one country back then? In the immediate aftermath of World War One, the Ottoman Empire dissolved, and you had all these places that had been governed by an Ottoman framework. And now it was gone. And so the the British actually had to figure out who was going to run the different parts of Arabia as sort of client states of the colonial government. And, you know, all these different tribes are, you know, that, so a lot of these guys are Hashemites, which are kind of, you know, and we, we meet a lot of different tribes in this movie and we see that they're all sort of. They have they have pre-existing relationships with each other, a lot of them antagonistic. And so the British were kind of installing kings or or rather guys with a with a natural claim to it would sort of step forward and say, I am the I am the the ruler of this. And if the British felt like they could work with them or or, you know, if it served their interest, they would say, all right, well, you're king of the you're king of the Syrians and you're king of you're king of Iraq and so forth. And, you know, it was all very much being decided super ad hoc and kind of, there were a lot of, a lot of people that could lay claim, you know, like Ibn Saad had, I don't know, 40 children. Wow. One um, of the great stick men. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what the number is, but like an astonishing number of children <laughs> and there, and within the, you know, within the Arab world, like they're all recognized as as princes and princesses. It's not like it's only the top two, right? That like everybody's in play somehow. And so then you get one more generation out of that. And you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. How many wives do you think for 40? Boy, it beats me to make 40. You got to have, we're talking at least 10. Yeah. But so, I mean, so it's very, and it's confusing for me to explain because I don't understand it fully. And a lot of, a lot of yeah. a lot of them have different or a lot of them have similar names i'm looking at uh, the wikipedia article here and it says that the british were deciding were were like taking a step back from direct administration in iraq and just like put it to the people like hey what if this guy this prince faisal guy would be be your king and they ran a plebiscite with 96% in favor right but so, but like super super rigged, right? Yeah, right. But but you know like ninety six percent is a is a very hard <laughs> number to swallow, credulously. But but all all of that Shia and Sunni stuff is that that now we're all pretty well acquainted with, like that is in play here too, um, and the Shia are are feeling like you know already disenfranchised by some of these moves, you know, there's, there's so many levels to the, to that tribal internecine conflict with one another that would be, would be absolutely impenetrable to Western eyes. And so, you know, if there's a power vacuum, somebody steps into it. And if they plant a flag and say, actually, my people have always ruled this and I have always been king. 
if you're dealing also with a preliterate society that most people aren't going to say like, well, in this book, it says something different. You know, you're just, you can establish control and, and then make that control seem and seem to us even like it's been there forever. Yeah. Like it's a historical inevitability. Right. Like it is written. Like it is written. Ooh. Kapow. Good job. I think we've uh, done this high wire act long enough. The uh, the discussion of uh, the history of the Middle East. They said it shouldn't be done. Oh no! And and yet. Oh, no. <laughs> hey guys, I stepped out for get- coffee and just uh, j- just came back. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> I think uh, I think we need a a rating system. It's a sunk cost issue at this point. Well, well I hope the rating system is one out of five Israel's rights to mm, exist. Yeah. <laughs> The rating system and the ratings for Friendly Fire films are always the least controversial part of any episode. Uh, it's not going to be any different for Lawrence of Arabia. I I looked forward to to giving my rating to a film mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of the speaking of Israel's right to exist, Faisal is the one that signed the agreement that uh, that with the with the British for Israel's right oh. to exist. Yeah, yeah. Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> After this movie turned around and signed in to law, Israel's right to You know, that whole thing was very curious because because in in the very end of World War II, the negotiations with the British and the the Americans uh, started to happen. Like FDR actually went to went to Arabia and met with, I think, Faisal. But Churchill met with him and spent the entire meeting trying to negotiate Palestine. Would you say that this is a circumstance where Faisal went west? Good God. I can't believe what this show purports to be. (laughs) Anyway, Churchill and he sat there and negotiated and spent the whole time arguing about Palestine or trying to work out Palestine. FDR spent the whole time cutzling up to him about oil mm. and saying like, hey, you know what? Hello, what we'll do is we'll help you get the oil out of the desert. What do you say? <laughs> and the and Churchill and the British felt incredibly betrayed because because it turned and I don't I don't think this actually was Faisal. I think this was oh wow it's so it's so it's so such a jumble in my mind. But the the Saudis ended up granting the granting standard oil of Ohio the rights to exploit the oil in the desert, cutting the British out. And the British, honestly, their attitude was like, we've done so much for you. What are you talking about? We were the ones the whole time. It's always about the oil, isn't it? And then it was about the oil. Give us the oil. That's great. Just walk away. Classic America. God bless America. We don't get real bookends to this film, but there is an object that could represent such a thing. It's that motorcycle. In the beginning, it's the it's the conveyance that that T. E. Lawrence dies upon. He's actually thrown from it, right? This, you run into this problem all the time in Seattle. It's the bikers sharing the road. Mm, gotta share the road, Adam. You gotta share the road, and uh, T. E. Lawrence is going so fast on his motorcycle that. Uh, Cannot he does swerve out of the way in time. He ends up going ass over tea kettle into that tree that ends up killing him. 
But at the end of the film, sometimes you'll uh, you'll get into a lift and the driver just wants to talk. It's unfortunate sometimes when this happens and uh, Lawrence is in the Jeep on the way home and he's fantasizing about being alone. You can tell because when this motorcycle cruises by at top speed, he's like, God, really wish I was on a motorcycle around now. So this Jeep driver <laughs> wouldn't chirp in my fucking ear for the rest of this eight hour trip through the, through the desert. I think for me, it's going to be a scale of one to five motorcycles for that reason. Motorcycle uh, can also be ton of fun to ride it can also be a death trap like there's a there's a lot of ambiguities about a motorcycle as a vehicle that i think uh represent what the lawrence of arabia film could be but i was i was nervous to watch this film in a way that i'm nervous to watch a lot of the great films of cinema history because you're like god is what was great great still how could I possibly be the person of today watching Hollywood greatness and be like, yeah, it's just too long. Or I didn't really get it. <laughs> it didn't teach me about the war like, like I would prefer. <laughs> you can't be that with Lawrence of Arabia, can you? There was no sex in this movie. There was like one little shot of the women that live among the... You know the desert guys. A, a failure of the Bechdel test. Oh no, right they they were ululating. That whole scene was pretty intense. There were many of them massacred, right? It's you see a lot of massacred women. Yeah. Yes. Yes, you do. Gruesome. How can you not give Lawrence of Arabia anything less than a perfect score? I don't think I have the strength to do it, even though I feel like this film takes liberties with the telling of Lawrence's story in a way that I should feel emboldened to give any kind of rating I want to this. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could just you can say what you want, Adam, on this show. This is a safe space. Well, I found a lot of the politics a little confusing. The conversation with you guys illuminated quite a bit of that, but I think your normal viewer isn't going to isn't going to have access to the great minds of John Roderick and Benjamin R. Harrison to get them through. That's why I feel like this, sh this show is a great accompaniment to a movie like this. I think maybe before the conversation, I would have given Lawrence of Arabia four motorcycles. But you filled in a lot of the blanks. You two. Hmm. You affected uh, my score. You filled blanks in for me, Adam. John, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just, I, I know when I talk, both your ears close. You start playing Mario Mario Kart. <laughs> what makes this film so unique for me and the way I am choosing to review it is that I think its greatness comes less from its story and its characters, but more about the miracle of its construction and how it looks and feels. It is so big and beautiful. It sounds so great. It sustains the action for so long. And by action, I don't even mean swords cutting people in two, I mean, like, there is something action-packed about a man's wandering through the desert. There's something very tension-filled about whether or not an entire army will live or die as they, as they go day and night through, through Satan's anvil or whatever. It's... <laughs> it was incredible. 
the way that this film was made is what makes it deserving of five motorcycles. The attention to detail, like I love how Peter O'Toole walked in every scene after being beaten, the little streaks of blood in the back of his uniform uh, in every scene afterward. Like we're not, we're showing and we're not telling and we're showing for four hours. I thought it was just great. And it might be a five motorcycle film to me in these ways. It may be five or four for someone else for completely different ways. And Turk I, Fan 69 is going to give this a one motorcycle rating. Turk Fan 69 doesn't even know what this film is. It doesn't exist to him, <laughs> but it exists big time to me. And it's something that I hope to rewatch over the years uh, the way you have, John. I, I never want to miss another screening of it at the Cinerama. I think that's the way to go if you can. I, I really enjoyed watching this film. There is a ton to like. Uh, those areas were the ones that I liked especially, and that's why I'm giving it five motorcycles. John, when you saw it at Cinerama, how did the how do they handle the intermission? Is it is it like do you get ten minutes to get up and go pee and buy more popcorn? Oh yeah, the lights come up, the that interstitial music plays, the you know the theme plays, and everybody yeah. goes down and gets a hot dog and another cup of coffee. I mean, anytime you get a chance to see a classic movie, one that was filmed in CinemaScope, yeah, on a seventy millimeter screen like that, or am I getting those terms right? Sure. Um, it's really, it's it's you know, it's a it's a uh, it's a date night. Ben, how would you uh, how would you review the film based on our five motorcycles rating system? I would review it with five motorcycles. Um, you know, I. <laughs> There's, there's part of me that doesn't want to like think that the great movies are are great. Like I want to be contrarian somehow and find something wrong with them. And uh, I guess I've done that a couple of times when I found something uh, major wrong with them. And th- you know, like this is a product of its time in a lot of ways, but it's like almost a perfect product of its time in that way. You want to put and- Ben into a corner on his rating you you make the rating system five prosthetic noses <laughs> see where he takes that one five brown faces yeah five, five. what are you gonna do now yeah what's your score ben <laughs> i loved it i loved almost everything about it and uh and i agree that I'll, this is going to be something that i return to a lot in the future and i uh, and i really want to see it uh projected in 70 millimeters because holy fuck what a great looking movie yeah yeah, even a even a rough um, print is still just astonishing. Those scenes in the desert, where the desert really fills the screen, and it's clear that it was meant. Those shots, I mean, that's why it's in seventy millimeter, because the desire to just show that scope, um, the, the, the those environments and those battles. Yeah. We didn't talk a lot in this in this uh, episode about the battles the actual fighting and partly it is that it's it's strange fighting right there are all these these train raids and in a way it's like butch cassidy and the sundance kid a lot of it but the you know some of these battle scenes with hundreds of extras and they're not just hundreds of extras like in some mel gibson movie where they're all yeah you can see their their tennis shoes under their (laughs) battle they went down to the unemployment office and were like 
We'll give you all five pounds if you run around in the mud. I mean, that cuts both ways. I was reading uh, the Moroccan army was used in some of these battle scenes. And sometimes you don't make your day when you're shooting with the real Moroccan army and they just don't want to act anymore. Yeah. They don't want to go back to one sometimes. No. And there were moments when David Leon just got what he got. Got what he got. I mean, just the question of where you find... 900 horses, 900 (laughs) horses that can all be ridden and 900 men who can ride 900 horses in order to film some of these spectacles. And camels. And yeah. And then in the middle of 900 horses, 50 camels uh, also running at full gallop. Ben, I've got a question for you about the camel. Like, I I feel like this film teaches you how to ride a camel by crossing your legs. Were you taught to cross your legs? The way they ride a camel is quite different from the way I rode. Like, I can't imagine you would be able to ride for days and days the way I was. I think it was that was like probably safer for a neophyte camel rider when when you ride it like a horse. Did we all read that? Because you have Peter O'Toole story about him going into town and getting a, a piece of foam to put under his butt. Did you read that? Mm-mm. He no. he invented a camel riding technology wherein like he he got his butt was just wrecked from a day of of camel riding and he's like <laughs> f this I'm going to go put down some padding and he did and it and everyone was inspired by it like for the rest of the production everyone was going into town buying scraps of foam putting it under their uh, under their butts and were far more comfortable after he they called wow. him like the king of the sponge yeah king of the sponge <laughs> i mean i think that the camel performances in this movie are low-key one of the great parts of it like they mug for the camera they make little belches and and like show their teeth at like the funniest times i have no idea how like they can't be directing the camels to do that but they punctuate the scenes so beautifully. There are scenes with 50 camels in it, and it sounds like the gentleman start your engines part of the Daytona 500. Like the sound of 50 camels <laughs> making that sound the, was, was like scary in parts. The, the best one of them was when they were heading out, headed out across the desert and Omar Sharif said, you know, in 20 days, the camels are going to start dying. Yeah. And his camel goes, <laughs> It was like... Right on cue. It was such a dramatic moment, but like... Camel doesn't know he's in a movie. Yeah, the camel knew. Camel knew what that guy was saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know that I think this is a five uh, motorcycle movie and just undeniable. undeniable. I mean, we've, we've only seen a couple of four-hour movies. This has an intermission. It takes you... A little bit out but then the second act is very different than the first but it's just so gorgeous and it's so much food for thought you know if you walk into this movie with a with a 2020 idea of the world and you can you can absolutely bring that idea of the world to bear within the within your experience of watching the movie you can also let your guard down and come out of the movie with more questions than answers. And if you and you can go in with your 2020 viewpoint and come out with it intact and still have more questions than answers. So in terms of like watching this movie as a way to read the newspaper better, watching this movie as a way to know what side you're on 
or not know what side you're on better because we're living in a time when you when you feel like you pick a side and then you just fight bitterly for your side whatever it is but and you know to sit on twitter and to have an opinion about the middle east to be jared kushner and feel like you can walk in and solve these problems with some contracts and particularly to armchair quarterback the middle east with with a lot of you know with a with a, a sociology degree from antioch is <laughs> It really um, behooves us to watch Lawrence of Arabia and know that it was made in 1962 by an American British filmmaking crew and know that it is lionizing, a, you know, a British officer during a period, very complex um, collision of a colonializing Ottoman Empire, a colonial British and French uh those nations also in competition with each other for for rule in this world and and all of the arab inhabitants and all of their complexities knowing it all you still can't watch a movie like this and and feel very confident that you that you know really anything how it would be different what we should do now so in that sense alone leave leave aside the cinerama filmmaking experience and frankly the incredible performance by Peter O'Toole a young actor like you say he'd only been in one movie and it's just astonishing that we we spent four hours just with him never off screen and you never see a crack in it yeah so yeah five motorcycles with a bullet five motorcycles and the tree Lawrence dies on great war movie But do we have great guys? I guess we're about to find out. Ben, who's your guy? Um, My guy is one that I only discovered when I went back to rewatch the scene on the steps of the cathedral. It's uh, it's Hugh Miller, the, uh, uh, I guess it's, he's like Royal Army Medical Corps uh, colonel. He, he like punches Lawrence, when he's there at the at the hospital in his Arab garb, uh, when you know when he the this colonel comes in and sees that that like the, you know the the situation in the hospital in Damascus for uh, Turkish soldiers is deplorable, and like punches Lawrence, but then like the next day meets Lawrence and knows him to be Lawrence and shakes his hand and doesn't realize that he's just recently punched him, <laughs> and then. Uh, uh, he, like in that opening scene, he says, "Like I got, I once like uh, you know had the had the honor of shaking his hand while he's like criticizing the the American reporter for uh, having a frank take on Lawrence as being a complicated person." <laughs> so, uh, just for like, I think this movie maybe at its best makes you realize that you are a bit uh, a bit of that guy, like. A lot of the world happens in a way that is impossible for for you to understand because you just don't have enough context. And uh, he didn't have enough context, but uh, you know, took the gravest possible exception to <laughs> to what the reporter said. Uh, so he's my guy. Good guy. Interesting reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, smart. My guy is Gazim. When Lawrence goes into the desert to save him. That's the moment that Lawrence becomes a god, I think. Like he's 
He becomes truly a god later when he's standing on that train, but that's the suggestion that he's special, and he needs that moment for uh, for the Omar Sharif character to fully come around on whether or not this guy's a threat or someone that he can partner with in any way. Like that, that meant a lot. That was a huge turning point. Kasim himself, though, is interesting in a couple ways. He's so normal. He's sort of a proxy for everyone on every side because he represents the random guy thrown into an army to fight a war that he doesn't really understand. He gets tired like a normal normal person does and falls off his horse in the desert. He gets saved, Camel. as I said, by Lawrence. And then later on, when the Hawatats and, and Ali's tribe are commingled in an effort to fight again, he's the guy that can't help himself. Like, he can't get with this with this peace that's been brokered in order to to fight another enemy. He has to be himself and he has to kill someone from that other tribe. And the look of disappointment in his own face when, like, it, he's more disappointed than Lawrence is in that moment. When Lawrence act, is able to identify him and he's like, oh God, not Gazim, really? Like, you feel pain in a couple of ways. You feel the pain of a guy who went through the effort to save a guy's life only to be let down. But also Gazim knows he fucked up and he is so sad about letting Lawrence down there. But Gazim can only be Gazim. Like it was in his nature to fall asleep. It was in his nature to kill that other, that other guy uh, ahead of a crucial mission. And when Lawrence executes him, it hurts, it sucks, but it's also another turning point for Lawrence. That's the moment where Lawrence realizes that, uh, that he enjoys killing and it changes his character forever. So Gassim gives the Lawrence character two gifts in a really interesting way. And I think you could easily dismiss Gassim as just like one of the many randoms in this movie, but he's not, he's really important. So he's my guy. So in that officer's club in Cairo, there are an awful lot of guys that could be my guy because they're standing around playing billiards and drinking hard lemonade. Well, old boy, it's in Cairo. Uh, drinking lemonade. Bottomless lemonade. <laughs> All you can drink. It's quite good, actually. I was making maps. Mips. <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of those guys with the with the handlebar mustaches in those beautiful khaki cotton khaki uniforms that they always had high and tight were could be my guy but it has to be Dryden because he's the perfect emblem of the the power behind the power behind the power soft power in all those rooms right he never asserts anything he always says Yes, well, I suppose. Which is the ultimate British way of saying, unload all remaining ordnance That's, on my coordinates. Is that British for bless your heart? <laughs> it is a little. <laughs> you know, the way he did, the way he motions to Lawrence a few times where he's like, down boy. You know, like anytime a general turns around and shows his back, 
Dryden is like working some angle behind him. Like he had common cause with Lawrence from the beginning. Like we know the military guys are dumb. You just cool your jets and let me work here. He does that several times in the movie and he does it even without moving. You know, he does it sometimes where he's just like, anyway, and he's perfectly quaffed, perfectly attired, perfectly composed in all things. You feel, you get the feeling that any room he was in could be on fire. Men could rush in at any time <laughs> and shoot everyone else in the room and they wouldn't shoot Dryden because he just looks like he belongs there. Like he just seems like, yeah, he's probably. He seems like he would be unflapped during sure. too. Seems like he'd, he's everybody's friend. He'd offer them a cigarette or, yeah. you know. So he's really the only person of his kind in the movie and he stands in for Balfour. He stands in for Treaty of Versailles. He stands in for Sykes Picot. He stands in for everything. In a way, he's the thing more than anything else that shapes the 20th century. He's the agent. Um, and we don't, you know, I'd like to watch a movie about him, although it would be, a, it'd be a, this movie just shot from a different angle. Wow. <laughs> what a fun episode. Uh, do you guys want to uh, get the uh, get the die out and see what, what the next one's going to be? Get that die. Here we go. What's it going to be? Ready? Here we go. Oh, now it's covered in coffee. Oh, 95. That's a tough that's a tough number to represent on a die. 95. Oh. Uh 95 is a 1970 film set during the Napoleonic Wars, directed by Jerzy Skolomowski. It's called The Adventures of Gerard. Or Gerard. The Adventures of Gerard. Wow, oh, this this story has a lot of antecedents hmm? in the uh-huh. in the the world of literature. I've never seen this movie though. A, f- a French brigadier serving during the Napoleonic Wars looks like an English cast, so <laughs> that should be fun. Is it the Lawrence of Arabia of the Napoleonic War films? Uh, I'm guessing not. It's it's mm. quite short. Compared to Lawrence of Arabia, oh clocking in at an hour and 32 minutes. All so, right. uh, yeah. It's going to feel brisk. Looking forward to it. Um, that will be next week on Friendly Fire. And uh, we're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's from here. For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Listen to me. Friendly Fire's a Maximum Fun podcast. Hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is a podcast that's made possible by the support of our listeners like you. To make sure that Friendly Fire continues, visit MaximumFun.org join and pledge your support. By doing so, you'll gain access to our monthly pork chop episodes, as well as all the other MaxFun bonus content. If you want to chat about our podcast on various forms of social media, just search for our discussion groups, or use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is found at CutForTime, 
John is at John Roderick, and you can find me at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.